0: Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast network. Welcome to the Blog by Design Podcast, where we explore the power and process behind design for Web3. We'll guide you through the immense challenges faced in Web3 and how embracing the right design methodologies helped overcome these blockers. I'm Reem. And I'm Akhil, and we are your co-hosts. Thanks for joining us once again, guys, to continue our series on user research. We're very excited to have with us today, Hester groikman from Status. She's a lead UX researcher and has been doing some great work in regards to user research in the ecosystem. So Hester, could you please start off by introducing yourself and what you facilitate at Status?
1: Yes, absolutely, Akhil. Um, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to join. So hi, everyone. Yeah, quick intro about myself. I'm a UX researcher at heart. I have a background in psychology. At some point during my studies, I realized psychology was not going to get me to actually be able to translate into product uh, development and product improvement, uh, which is where I felt I could make more impact. So I I follow it up by moving into design, which is uh, basically what I've been working in ever since, but always from a UX research uh, perspective. Uh, let's see in terms of uh work experience i I'm at status at the moment. I joined about two years and one week uh ago almost two congratulations thank you thank you um so i'm I'm slowly starting to grasp the pace but it's it's moving so fast it's it's hard to keep up it's a steep learning curve but yeah, definitely comparing to two years ago um Starting to build a a bit of an understanding of the technology and its capabilities. Before joining status as a UX researcher, I've been working as a freelancer for quite some time, worked in contrast at Facebook as a contractor uh, for a little while in the ads department of all things. Um, before that, I kind of least At least
0: you switched over to the good side. I, I, sw-
1: <laughs> I switched over to the good side. No, if anything, it has given me a very nuanced perspective. So yeah, we, we can get back to that. Yeah, and before that, I kind of, I jumped through different spaces. I worked in finance, uh, I worked on uh, medical devices for the consumer electronics company Philips, where I also worked on uh, televisions, I think smart TVs, remote controls, gesture-based, voice-based interaction, uh, things like that, and a lot of TVs in repair, screwed open, prototype. Devices, so definitely start, starting out with a hardware perspective. Yeah, I would say that's about about me up until joining Status. What I what I do at the moment is kind of facilitating uh, the design team and the development team by uh, what what I now like to describe as a product people uh, translator. Um, so I, I I'm a pain in the ass to all the developers on the team. I'm a pain in the ass to all the designers on the team. I try to ask as many questions as I can to understand the technology. And I try to get as much feedback as I can on how we best explain that to users, also relying on usability experience and uh, psychology backgrounds. And next to that, I, I lead the design team trying to make sure that everyone has a pretty set frame of what they're expected to to work on. The demand is, is high. Um, so I try to kind of break the work up in in chunks and facilitate the designers in in doing that.
0: That sounds awesome. So one thing that I found interesting when you were speaking about your background in psychology, you mentioned that you always wanted to kind of move into products, so was psychology something you got into because you were interested in design or was that a consequence of you learning?
1: my god um i so actually i wanted to be either a journalist or a psychologist or more or less the two things when you don't know what you want to do when you grow up at least for for a lot of people i found (laughs) um so definitely I was leaning towards the human side. I think I did not realize that what I was interested in was design. So what got me excited about studying psychology was actually, uh, the side of cognitive psychology. And at some point I saw this leaflet that showed a cockpit in an airplane, um, with all the levers and buttons and switches and things that you would control. Leaping and uh, blinking. And I thought, wow, that's fascinating. If you can design that so that you know exactly what to respond to. Uh, And that's actually what drew drew me into psychology. Um, At at the time, it just, it didn't trigger any, any bells, or it didn't have any association with design for me. But better psychology, um, I, I guess I see that a little bit more cohesive or holistic right now.
0: Quite selfishly, I want to dig into the physical product side of things because that's an area of interest that I've had for quite a while and how human interfaces and you talked about vision and gesture control. So are there some learnings as far as user research and uh, even design methodologies that you picked up from your experience at Philips that you think translates well to the Web3 ecosystem or are any processes that we could utilize?
1: A multitude, I would say. Um, one of the things that I, I found specifically different between uh, designing and researching for hardware products versus digital products, so I also worked at the bank ING, domestic bank, on, on finance products, which was digital only. One of the difference I, n- I noticed is the, uh, the throughput time of development um, in hardware devices. You definitely do have to think two, three years ahead, depending on what you're developing, obviously, and that may have changed um, yep. in the meantime, um, but the consideration of all the, all the chips and all the connectors that you want to use, that suppliers need to provide, that creates an atmosphere where you start to become very diligent about specifying uh, what you need, um, how everything in in the product and user system interaction will behave, and how that translates to the exact components that are ordered over time. That level of documentation and specification, uh, I think, is very useful to transfer to something as complex as what we're designing for in the blockchain space. Another thing that I would say was uh, a great learning experience working at Philips Medical Systems is the um, importance of safety first design and testing safety features and how to distinguish those from potentially other niceties that you could have in an application. So that's not necessarily related to to hardware, um, but definitely related to hardware medical devices that can actually do physical harm to people. I believe still physical harm is... um, has a reputation or a reputation, I'm not sure if that's how to best put it, but is something that we can all identify with as harm, whereas um, risk of privacy is not necessarily top of mind. But the same processes are very useful to follow.
0: Well, not only even privacy with crypto economics, a lot of people's well-beings mentally, and sometimes even physically, because of the the amount of money or resources they have locked up in the ecosystem is quite interesting as well, especially you having first had experience having traveled to countries such as Cuba and Venezuela. So could you speak a little bit more about the work that you've been doing with Status and the pragmatic approach that they've taken with putting boots on the ground and actually doing field research with users in quite a broad range of countries and backgrounds?
1: yeah absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I mean there's there's two ways that like re- research for for blockchain is is different uh, on the one hand, coming from this perspective of safety first um, that you see in like medical devices and hardware devices uh, that can affect uh, physical harm. That track kind of brings you to more risk management and experimental design to test out potential mitigations that you might set in process. On the other hand, and this is, uh, I think what you're you're referring to, like having boots on the ground and visiting countries like, um, in this case, it was uh, Colombia, actually, Colombia, Venezuela. Last year, with a research team at Status, we um, visited uh, South Korea as well. We have an extensive network of ambassadors. So uh, having having boots on the ground and leaning on actual live data is something that is a priority for us why i i think that's crucial especially in the blockchain space as you as you were referring to the the impact of blockchain in these settings is that you you need to understand the context if you want to design a, a product or a service that does not end up doing more harm than good I, I'm a firm believer that that level of context you need in order to do that is not something that you can build up remote. For sure. There's, there's different ways in which being on the ground actually make such a strong impact. On the one hand, experiences that you can even read about, there's loads of stories. If you, if you follow local Bitcoin or crypto communities. You read lots of stories uh, about how cryptocurrency is used, how it's used for humanitarian aid, how it's used by like local shops. It's not the same as the experience of um, being in a country and seeing how it's used uh, exactly. So that, like, to to give you an example, um, I went to Venezuela thinking that cryptocurrency is definitely on. The rise. And said it, it might be interesting for, for status to understand how uh, the product's key card that we're building could be used there as a, as a debit card solution um, to pay in, in shops with a key card and I still believe that's the case um, but some information that I would have missed would have been standing in a queue at the register wanting to pay in cryptocurrency and hearing and feeling the frustration of people around you merely by asking, asking that question, can I pay with crypto? Because it's not as common as you would tend to read on, on social media. And it is actually um, not set up in a way that is as convenient and smooth as our conventional payment systems are. So it leads other people to wait and queue for 15 minutes while you make your crypto payment. That type of experience gives like, such a, a visual uh, impression that you, you simply can't get remote. Another example of why I think being on the ground is so important is that it gives you this understanding of an ecosystem as a whole. And how paying with cryptocurrency or um, lending cryptocurrency, saving or voting with NFTs, whatever fits into that wider ecosystem, which is also very difficult to find on the ground because you miss this sense of serendipitous experiences. Let's say say we had in mind this idea of tapping a key card, a crypto debit card on, on a merchant's phone to pay for particular goods. If you were to do that in Colombia after 10 p.m. and maybe um, certain areas of neighborhoods in in Medellin, uh, also during the daytime, it would mean that a merchant that would normally have their shop covered by bars out of safety precautions would need to then hold their, their expensive private mobile phone through these bars in order to accept a payment that's a context that's very difficult to capture if you're not there because you kind of bump into it by accident
0: so is there a process when you're on the ground to log this information what type of preparation does an individual need to do if they want to do some research in the environment are you guys reaching out to local community members to facilitate this do you guys usually take translators or what, what does the process for a research mission like this look like
1: mm-hmm. I mean, I can definitely give you like the textbook uh, preferred approach, uh, but it's not necessarily that you're required to follow that approach. It can also become a very expensive endeavor, which is um, not the case I want to make. I want to make the case which we, sh- we should all be, yeah, offer seats away from our computers and going on, on the ground and, and working with people. The ideal approach, obviously, is that you, you have a fixer who can set you up with a representative group of people. So I'm, I'm talking about serendipitous encounters, which you want to leave enough room for, but you also want to make sure that you um, have selected a set of individuals that, for sure, can provide you with information about the, the local ecosystem. Uh, these could be local businesses. Uh, let's say people who have been running businesses in the, in the crypto ecosystem. So in Venezuela, we also talked to a local exchange. We went to um, Petro. So you you have a set of Let's say meetings and individuals defined that that for sure you want to visit and basically you, you need a very good fixer to to help identify uh, who exactly those people would be and set up and arrange meetings so there there are some prerequisites uh, that you need when when you want to do field work uh, like this, but then there's also the more uh, sp- spontaneous encounters so just being in a country trying to use different types of payment methods i remember being in uh, beijing uh, going to a local food market trying to pay in cash just because i was in beijing this wasn't a big expensive study that was set up Um, this is just profiting from the opportunity of being in a different country and trying to make the most of it by um, using different different communication channels different payment tools The learning in in Beijing was, again, this visceral experience of um, wanting to pay in cash, which is completely unconventional because everybody uses WeChat Pay or uh, Alipay, which led uh, an older lady at this food market to rush to, I guess, I suppose, another shop where she could then exchange the cash that I gave her to give me some change in return, which obviously she didn't have on hand because nobody would pay in cash. These are things that can also be very learningful. That's not necessarily a formal research setup.
0: It's quite interesting. Last time I was in China, they were actually showing on the news that the government passed like a legislation making it mandatory for shops to actually accept cash because people were having the same issues that you're having. Is like when they do want to use cash, no one's accepting it because it's so rarely used at this point. So now it's a law that... Shopkeepers actually have to accept cash.
1: Being on the ground is a really good uh, way to gain understanding of a complete trail of information and a complete, complete trail of, of money. So, for example, in, in Venezuela, we we went to visit a, lo- a local shop where people were, were paying in, in cash, but cash was in, in US dollars, uh, which was not popular at the time because at least outside of Caracas, outside of, uh, let's say, the capital or in more rural areas, the denomination is just simply too high, so people don't really know what to do with U.S. dollars. Um, so we were curious, like, okay, then what happens to Dash Cash, whether it's U.S. dollar or it's, it's Bolivar, which was more widely accepted. And following the stories of going to someone buying goods to someone selling goods to then where do you get your your supplies then going to the supplier and asking okay where do you get your your goods and services from Helped us understand that um, actually, cacao and gold are still very much used as saving saving mechanisms, which is is fascinating. If you want to think yeah. about like an ecosystem as a whole, that the, like the trail of cryptocurrency ends somewhere. Uh, you can get people to pay with cryptocurrency, but what what is the whole supply chain going to do? Those are things that are much more easy to to understand when you're on the ground. And again, it's not. You don't necessarily need to have a very formal process. Obviously, you can have your basic interviews. You can you can set up participatory design or co- co-design sessions with people. You can bring bring along prototypes and set up like actual test sessions. You can uh, simulate payments. You can run pilots. There's a host of basically every. UX research tool that you, that you can imagine that you can also pl- apply uh, remotely on, on the ground once you're uh, on location. Um, but it doesn't necessarily have to follow that process in order for you to learn. I think at this point in time where we are all used to designing, developing, researching from within our own confined, just being local, Staying local, paying local, meeting people, asking as many questions as you can is the easiest way to get started in doing field research. And then obviously you, you'll figure out that there, there can be more process to it.
0: I think that's a good segue in perhaps getting a bit more context into causal loops and what you've learned from maybe working in Southeast Asian countries about what's driving adoption and what other individuals working in the ecosystem can kind of learn from that.
1: All right, I mean, so causal loops were like a revelation to me when I learned about them. Uh, and I followed a workshop by a lady named uh, Cheryl Kababa, who's design the process as to how to apply this uh, technique uh, in your daily design work, as it's it's coming from a lot more of a formal systems design perspective. What it does is basically just like you, you start drawing circles and having been uh, in a local environment, collecting real data just simply makes that easier. So for example, if you want to understand which was the, the case, what happens if if people start using a key card for payment that means they need a currency um, so they need some sort of cryptocurrency exchange or a fiat to crypto exchange that they can buy the currency great that's that's a product that we're working on so that's a path in the loop that we can still follow then what happens they might have that currency and they want to pay with it which means the merchant will get the funds um, what does the merchant then do with those funds? will they be able to spend it as well or do they need a different type of currency again to support their their supply chain if their supply chain doesn't accept crypto how do we then allow them to exchange their crypto again for, for fiat and how do we do that without putting too much of a burden on them so you can start creating this whole loop of if people buy a card with cryptocurrency on it, it means that they might use it to to spend a currency and it means that People might start accepting the currency and it means that they will then need to sell it, which is a basic example of what a um, exchange platform could potentially provide. So this technique of like sketching out what a potential flow might be in a circular manner um, helps you understand if you are still reaching the right objective, or if you move too far in let's say in in the circle <laughs> to stick to that uh, that shape or form does it become behavior or an unintended consequence that's too far away from the objective you had that's not the product outcome that you want um so an example that um zero used in the in the workshop she gave in medellin was very striking very basic and understandable to me was If you ban plastic bags in a supermarket, um, at some point you will see an uptake in people buying a small size plastic bag, because apparently these were being used for um, garbage collection. So... You'll see that,
0: that. I'm guilty of that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, do, I, do, I totally, I do, I do the same thing. And if we don't, we actually don't have a, a total ban. You pay for less plastic bags in the Netherlands. But it's it makes it completely understandable. And it, it helps you kind of anticipate what the impact of your product would be over time by kind of sketching out this flow of potential actions. Obviously, you want to do that based on data. It could be qualitative data. It could be quantitative data. But it, it helps you understand potential consequences. What my concern is, and, and this is based on the recent trip I did, was if if we manage, like it's the question, what if we're successful? If we manage to get people to use cryptocurrency on a very accessible format, which could be a key card, and let's say it's a stable coin, and they start relying on that stable coin, which is what we do when we rely on our, our current currencies, you can create this whole network of dependency, which, which can also have adverse effects.
0: So I think the topic of unintended consequences is quite interesting that we kind of delved a bit into in our last episode. To dig a little bit deeper into that, we're, we are building a technology that's quite nascent and we're building for human connections what are some challenges that you think user research can help facilitate not only from the human side of things but also from product development how does user research have an impact uh, moving forward
1: it's very so this is like words not to use right unintended consequences empathy uh, ethical design <laughs> um <laughs> all, um They're all sensitive topics that people tend to have a lot of opinions about, but I I do think that user research is one of the tools that can definitely invoke perceived importance on on things like like empathy and, and ethical design. Simply because it's it's pointing out the reality. It's pointing out people's stories, how they might use a product. I think another thing that that's typical is that people who who do use a research statistic for that to that for a second is that they're they're trained facilitators. And what we need in, in this space is people who are facilitating a, a conversation, a translation from a very low level product or technology that's being designed into interfaces. It's, it's almost going back to, uh, let's, let's say, the 60s where, yes, now we have this computer mouse and we need to somehow translate that to things that you can do on the screen and how you interact with, with menus and, and pointers. I think in in having that conversation user researchers or people in that role are typically good people to have on a team just to facilitate that conversation it basically comes down to to interview techniques to to understand how does this work exactly so why does it work like this okay so what makes it that it works like that to dig deeper into to understanding the technology without an abstraction layer so that we can build an intuitive and and accurate UI on top of it, which is always a bit of a balance, I have to say, also at Status, where we try to not obfuscate um, any of the information. We try to um, not abstract away complexity to the point where it becomes inaccurate Mm -hmm. out of wanting to simplify and wanting to make things more intuitive and more Web 2.0-like. It doesn't necessarily have to be like that. I think there there's many ways to stick to original or accurate representations of, of a system that are still understandable if we use the right analogies and context um, around the, let's say, the more accurate terminology that we use.
0: So I think stepping back a little bit It wouldn't be too far off to assume that Status is only one of the few organizations that has the resources or I'd say the foresight to do work like this. So if there's any other organizations that somehow come across this message, what would you like to showcase as a perhaps a case study or a win from a research standpoint that kind of translated within the actual product for status and perhaps kind of walk us through what that process looks like of going from research to something that actually has an impact on product.
1: Hmm. Yeah. So there's, I'm, I'm trying to think like what perspective should I follow here? The perspective of the problem, like the problem that we found or the perspective of the role as, as a researcher. So maybe to to start with the latter, I think my role as a researcher has switched moving more and more away from from research and moving more and more into something like let's say lead for for design and implementation to product management almost has been lack of being able to find a process to move along all these issues, all these problems that we found in research and find a path forward to improving them in the product. So that, that in a way, maybe already answers a little bit or speaks a little bit to your question of what is that process like? I think like coming from a user research perspective, it is very, very difficult to shape that process. That process needs to be integrated and fully embedded in the way of working of the teams, of the product teams themselves. And yeah, any any team working in in the space, wanting to understand if their products are understandable, if they're building the right thing hiring a user researcher is not not going to going to get you there i'm i'm incredibly happy that as you as you put it um, status has had the the foresight to invest in in work like this but it's a continuous effort to understand how we translate the work into product development as many uh, products in the space i think uh, we kept running into this this issue of people not being familiar with concepts like, like seed phrase or keys or uh, the fact that things are, cannot be retrieved if you don't have, have your seed phrase. So these, these very core and basic principles to how blockchain works. We we kept running into people not really being familiar with those understandably. So what we ended up doing to resolve that in, in design was to try and make these things visual so we started working with an illustration company and trying to explain to them these are the concepts which is an effort in itself to eventually um, develop illustrations to let's say, your, your shiny, beautiful key. So we, we didn't necessarily have to give that key a, a name, which is the first one you generate. And later on, we put that key on a keychain, and that constitutes your, constitutes your wallet with all your accounts in there. So in, in trying to visualize it, I think, is, is how we managed to sort of bring that in the product.
0: It's a challenge for designers working in the ecosystem to get started with the user research. Because that's not really a priority for most organizations. So what is a good starting point for people to kind of start in this direction?
1: There's a few aspects to it. Like one, one is like, when, when do you start? And the other is, how do you start? And I want to address, when do you start? Because I know for, for a lot of businesses, there's always this idea of research, user experience, research, user research is expensive. Let's not do that now. We can do it once we scale, we can do it later. So here's the thing, uh, a very common counter argument to that is, well, it doesn't have to be expensive and like, you, you can already do it now, which on I, I, I support, I think that's, uh, that's totally the case because user research doesn't have to be expensive at all, especially um, now there's a lot of tools out there that will uh, help you simply have a call with people remote, have them share their screen. So it, it basically takes you a bit of time to set that up. But on the other hand, I'm, I'm not too keen on the counter-argument uh, that it, it isn't expensive, so you can just start doing it. Because I, I think user research is something that you need to do uh, depending on the questions you have. Uh, if your question is, we just want to see if we can build this infrastructure, if we can build this technology, that doesn't necessarily have to be a user research question Yeah, I don't see it in such a way that... Organizations are more mature if they if they also do research. It completely and totally depends on the types of questions you want to answer, and user research is is a tool in that. So you can you can easily follow this cycle. I, I had a, a teacher. Um, years ago who who left an impression on me who talks about you can you can start with a hunch you can start with what then develops from that hunch into an idea and you can start with what developed from that idea into into a product or in something that you're building and you can enter user research anywhere in that cycle it doesn't have to be ahead of time it also doesn't have to be only to to validate at the end so it, it totally depends on the questions you have but then again, if you want to start out as an organization, I would say get your research questions on the table first. And that sounds easier said than done. There's there's a lot lot of nuance and a lot of steps that you can go through to to get to the right research questions. Once you have those nailed down, setting up research is is relatively straightforward is it's defining the right question that's the most challenging part which is also something that you need a lot of business input for it's a great parting point as an organization because you have all the context of what it is that you want to know
0: so are there any key resources you utilize to build up the skill set to have those conversations with business partners and key stakeholders in the organization so if there is individuals within the ecosystem that are new to advocating for research or getting this type of work done uh, what type of resources can they use to upskill themselves that's
1: a really tough question <laughs> i would almost say no i do i do not have resources i think that my my approach is primarily based based on experience the resource you you could use yourself as a researcher would be uh, Interview skills and getting in front of the right people to understand what questions are valid and are necessary for the business. No, I'm kind of. I have to say, I'm I'm kind of stuck on that. I think it's definitely something that could use some some development. I know we have a lack of, let's say, a lack of resources in this area of product definition and product research relatively compared to development. So it's it's definitely a space where it, it would make sense for a lot more people to do research. Um, at the same time, my stance is kind of like, there's no point in in building something if you don't know what problem you're solving with it. It definitely makes sense to kind of have more people from a humanitarian Human centric or uh, social science backgrounds uh, join teams opposed to organizations moving into research themselves. There's a Dutch expression, uh, which I'm going to have a hard time translating that, but it, it's, it's something about a shoemaker like, shoemakers stick to what you do best. And I, I'm, <laughs> I'm a big fan of that. Um, stick to what you do best and collaborate as much as possible. Um, and I think the collaboration, especially with Human centric uh, designers, people coming from social scientists, ec- economists, are skills we're lacking. I'd rather work on those than than educating on user research.
0: Perfect. Thank you for joining us today. Where can people learn more about you and get in touch with you if they wanted to?
1: I'm definitely on status. <laughs> My ENS name is Hester. Uh, H-E-S-C-R. Um So if you if you download Status and you uh, start a chat, um, that's how you can find and add me on Twitter. Um, it's my first name first name last name. So Hester, and then again the name you so wonderfully pronounced, uh, Bruikman. Um I don't so, think yeah, I did this, this as great. of a good
0: job on the recording, but <laughs> <laughs> just know I did do a good job practicing it. But
1: um. for sure, yeah. you nailed it. It was perfect. I hadn't heard anyone pronounce it like that accurately.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Thanks, Akil. It was uh, it was a pleasure joining. Thanks so much.